Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We have an hour of science for you now in which we are going to do something that is a tad out of whack with reality, but we're going to try and pull it off. I'm hoping in the next 30 minutes that we will be able to interview the 14 semi-finalists for the FameLab competition in Victoria. This is a contest that takes uh, average scientists. They have to be early career, so PhDs or I think in the first few years of their their postdoctoral studies, and it puts them in front of an audience with nothing but a single prop. Now, they can't use a prop with me, but they normally have a full three minutes to describe their science. And the winners from Victoria will go on to a national competition. And then the ones from uh, our national competition winners will go on to compete in the UK. So it's a pretty uh, international competition. It's, it's, it's quite amazing, and, and they all do very well. Uh, it's very different this year because they all had to do it via a uh, video broadcast instead of actually being in front of a, a big audience, but uh, still uh, was was fun, and we agreed that we would put them all on radio because Triple R is one of the supporters of this program, and we thought, what the hell, let's put all 14 of the Victorian semifinalists on the radio in one, one go. So we're about to start that now, and... Uh, Actually, we have 15 guests today in total. We have another guest after these. We thought, why stop at 14 when we can do 15? Then we're going to talk to the rest of my co-hosts at the end of the show for some news. So I'm going to start off now with our first guest. That's Courtney Lewis. She's from the University of Melbourne. Courtney, are you there? Good. Hi. Hi, Shane. Now, you're working on uh, something that apparently relates jelly beans to dementia. Do tell. Yes. Um, so my research overall focuses on changes in eating behavior in people with dementia and how we can use any early changes in that eating behavior diagnostically. So a component of that recently has been seeing if there's a lack of food disgust in certain types of dementia and if that's something that can be detected earlier than some of those other telltale cognitive symptoms that tend to come up. So you can't give people bad, spoiled food that make them sick. That's pretty unethical. Mm -hmm. But you can give them those disgusting Harry Potter jelly beans. Oh, yeah. So I've been, yeah. Yeah, and and there's such a range of those um, flavored jelly beans. Presumably you could test, like, there's a whole lot of different things you could be testing there with those. Yeah? Absolutely. And so that's the best part of it is because disgust is so cultural and, and you're um, – prior experiences, I can give you a range of different disgusting things and guaranteed one of those bad tastes you're going to find disgusting. Yeah. Does this mean that we could use these um, use these sort of these jelly bean tastes and that as a early warning system? Should everyone go and taste 100 jelly beans a year and make sure you have the same experience you had the previous year and note that down? No, it might help you with looking at your sense of smell, and that can be an indicator of different neurological disorders. But as far as my test, it's really looking more at a very specific type of dementia, which is earlier. And so we need kind of some of those other signs and symptoms first, and then we can use this to kind of 
to help us confirm that, yes, this is probably the, the dementia type that you have. Because at the moment, that's a tricky diagnosis. Mm. Well, Courtney, thanks so much. Good luck with your ongoing work. And uh, thanks for being Triple, Triple R's first guest for today. Thank you. Now we have Taylor Marchett from Swinburne University of Technology. Taylor, can you hear us? Hi, Shane. Yes, I can hear you. Excellent. Now, you're working on 3D concrete printing. How do you print concrete? Um, Well, pretty much people might be familiar with the typical desktop 3D printer. It might print plastic. It pretty much just deposits layer by layer of plastic. We're pretty much just upscaling that to a size of a house and such and just pumping out a concrete mixture that's pretty stiff and rigid so it can be stacked upon itself. Mm. I mean, what does that mean in terms of the, the print? Like, I, I suppose I have one image that the printer is bigger than the house, but that's not what we're talking about here, is it? We're, we're printing components? Well, actually, the whole scope of it can be done in factories and manufactured prefabricate components, but the real uh, issue is trying to actually upscale it to print it in place where it's actually going to be located. So... There's a whole range of different systems that are out there. So there's ones that are bigger than the actual house. There's ones that are movable into different sections of the house and print the components actually on site. Hmm. So that's the aim. That sounds great. I mean, is this the sort of thing we'd sort of take to the moon or Mars and and print, you know, print local structures when we get there? Well, yeah, exactly. NASA actually held a competition last year, uh, which uh, had a few component uh, companies that universities and Caterpillar sponsored it to actually try and build a habitat on Mars using 3D printing. Hmm. And what's the so, biggest yeah. what's the biggest challenge you're finding at the moment with um, with actually setting this up to work? So one of the biggest challenges is getting the material to be stacked upon each other at a build rate that's sufficient, and also my our research itself is looking at how to actually tie these interlayers together with some form of reinforcing method, which is usually found in typical concrete structures. So it's pretty hard to do that with printing. So my technologies are looking at developing those systems. Sounds great, Taylor. Thanks so much for being our second guest today on, on Triple R. Right, no worries. See you, Shane. See ya. Uh, we have Bapashi Kashyap from Deakin University. Are you there, number three, Bapashi? Hi, Shane. How are you? Good. How are you going? Good, thanks. Now, you're working on uh, our speech and how this is, uh, I suppose, linked to our, our neural health. Tell us about that. Uh, yes. So uh, I am focusing on speech symptoms in progressive neurological disorders, uh, particularly cerebral ataxia. And, and what is that condition, cerebral ataxia? So uh, cerebral ataxia is caused by a dysfunction in the cerebellum, that is the part of the brain which coordinates uh, voluntary muscle movements, like Mm -hmm. open and close our mouth when we speak, and any damage to the cerebellum will cause a slurred speech. So I'm designing an algorithm which can identify uh, some really unique characteristics from your voice when you speak, and it will diagnose if you have a neurological disorder and produce a score of its severity. Mm. Uh, is it specifically linked to that condition or could this sort of um, software pull out, I suppose, speech issues connect to many conditions? Is it, is it going to be hard to work out it's specific to this one? Oh, no, it's, it's very generic. So it's like uh, whenever you have any speech pathology, so not necessarily neurological disorder, so any other disorders, if you have a speech problem, so they have some specific symptoms which vary from disorder to disorder, and you can use this device to characterize those features, and then you can produce a score. Mm. 
Yeah. It sounds great. And it sounds like this could be done fairly early on before we as humans can pick up those changes. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's because they say that 90% of the people with neurological disorders have speech symptoms. And it worsens over time as the disease progresses. So it's mostly for early intervention. And I guess that's pretty much what it will empower the patients to have a greater control of their healthcare decisions. Mm, fantastic. Great work, uh, Bipashi. Thanks so much for chatting to us on Triple R. Thank you. Thank you. We have now uh, Dr. Anne Osbrook from University of Melbourne. Anne, good morning. Good morning. Now, you work on um, sleeping under streetlights, and I, I suppose this is something that we don't think about. Uh, there's a lot of people, especially in Melbourne, who do this, but uh, specifically, what are you looking at in terms of, of this, this issue of sleeping under streetlights? So my research is actually focused on how streetlights affect wildlife. Ah, so right. how streetlights affect sleeping birds. So my research has been on magpies with a colleague and also pigeons and black swans. Yep. And what, I mean, one of the things I found amazing was uh, how bats respond to solid surfaces like windows. They think that it's um, like the surface of a lake. What what sort of things happen with regards to streetlights and, and birds? Because this is really not something they're used to. I mean, moonlight's one thing, but, you know, fluorescent streetlights are something else. Yeah, absolutely. So the way we use light has just changed our environment on a global scale. So some of the things, so light is essentially a cue for time, right? It tells us what season it is and what time of day it is. And so one thing is that it can uh, disrupt sleep. So how much birds sleep at night and what that sleep is like, how, how disrupted it is, how consolidated it is, what type of sleep it is. So that's, that's one thing that can happen. Mm. Does, does it look like there's a, a version of, of lighting that we could use that would, you know, deal with this in a positive way or are we kind of cornered here? Yeah, that's a great question and that's a key focus of my research. So you know how on your smartphone or your laptop you'd have a twilight or a night mode or something like that that shifts the light to look more orange at night. Mm. So we were interested in that could whether that could help birds as well. And the result so far is that it probably depends. Mm. And so like a lot of these things, there might not be no one-size-fits-all solution, but I think perhaps another solution is too to consider where we actually need lights, whether we can reduce them where they're not necessary and whether we can design our lights as well to actually shine the light where we want it to be rather than spilling out into our parks and reserves and everywhere else. Yeah. As an amateur astronomer, I'm all for this. I'd like to see less lighting. Preferably, I'd like an app personally that would allow me to control the lighting of the entire city so I can just <laughs> turn it off when I want to take my telescope out. Because it's, it's incredible how bad it is compared to when you're in, in a sort of country setting. But um, thanks so much, Anne. That's really interesting work. Good luck with that. It's important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Lauren Young from Swinburne University. Lauren, can you hear us? Yep, I can hear you, Shane. Good morning, Lauren. Now, you work on uh, nutrition and feeding the brain. Tell us what's going on there. Um, well, we're currently faced with an ageing population in Australia and like many Western countries. And um, parallel to that, we're also seeing an increased intake of um, processed foods, so our fast foods, and overall our, our diet is getting poorer. Mm. And do we know, like, what, you know, do we have good evidence on what helps us and what doesn't with regards to these things at the moment? 
Yes, well, that has been a major focus of my research. I think we have uh, a lot of cross-sectional evidence. So we, we know that when people are eating better, they generally feel better and it's linked to um, uh, healthy ageing. Um, but if we really want solid evidence, then we need to have randomised controlled trials. Um, and this is, uh, I guess, something that's been lacking in the research. Mm. And what do you mean by a randomised controlled trial? What, what is that exactly? Yeah, so we need to basically um, provide people with an intervention. Um, so whether that be um, giving them a diet uh, to follow for a certain amount of time or a supplement. Um, and then alongside that, we'll have a, a, a control group. Um, and the problem that we're seeing is that a lot of the people um, that, who volunteer for these type of trials um, generally have good diets already. And so this has been um, a, a major flaw that I identified in my own research is um, we see the people who volunteer already have good diets and um, it, we might not be targeting the right types of people. Mm. Sounds like you can get the right people in with a little extra work though. Yes, uh, and we spent a lot of time um, for my study trying to get people that were um, representative of our Australian population because we know that majority are not meeting the recommendations for um, fruit yeah. and vegetable intake. Mm. So, yeah. Thanks so much, Lauren. Important work. Uh, great Thanks, to chat to you again on Triple R. Some people might remember Lauren was part of our 20 in 20 group last year, so this is her actually her third run on Triple R. Uh, next up is Dr. Rikea Maliki from La Trobe University. Uh, Rikea, can you hear us? Yes. Hello, Jane. Uh, actually, a PhD student. Uh, oh, you're still a PhD student. I, I'm yeah. sorry, I accidentally gave you a PhD. Just put that in the cupboard somewhere. Uh, now tell us, your, your title is the black hole of cancer. I got excited for both being black holes and cancer. Tell us about what you're doing. Right. So um, I'm using nanoparticles to help target chemotherapy drugs to tumors. Mm -hmm. And the black hole is basically, in, um, in this instance, the tumor itself. So tumors are surrounded by blood vessels that have pores in them. And that allows the blood and all the nutrients in the blood to get sucked into the tumors. And so sort of like a black hole. And similarly, they lack the lymphatic vessels that would usually help drain excess fluids from the body. So um, everything also gets that gets sucked in, gets retained similarly to a black hole as well. Mm. And, and when you're trying to get these nanoparticles to that location, how do you stop them going everywhere else where you don't want them? All right. So um, we're using these to target chemotherapy drugs to tumors. Um, so chemotherapy is really tiny, and when you inject it into the blood, because it's so small, it just diffuses out of the blood vessels and it spreads all throughout the body. Um, and because it's not specific to any any certain types of cells, it kills all healthy cells, and you end up with um, severe symptoms or severe side effects from mm. the chemotherapy. But the nanoparticles are quite large. Um, they're about a thousand times larger than the chemotherapy drugs, so they they can't escape from the blood vessels, and they end up going all around the blood until they reach the tumors. Yeah, you know, you're the first person I've ever had on this on this show that said the nanoparticles are quite large. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just just finally, um, how how far have you progressed? Is, is this being done now in animal models, or have you gone beyond that? Yeah. So my whole research is on animal models. Um, we're using some clinically approved nanoparticles. We're trying to initially we wanted to find nanoparticles that worked better than ones that were used clinically, mm. but we found now that the clinical ones are great, but just not in the setting that they're being used at the moment. Okay. Well look, that's it's it sounds really fascinating. I love all this nanotechnology stuff, especially applied to cancer. So 
great chatting to you and good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks so much. Next up is Dr. Ben Sinclair. Good morning, Ben. Good day, Shane. How are you? Good. You actually have a PhD. Have I got that one right? I do, yeah. Excellent. Uh, from Monash University. Now, you're working on elements of, um, of exercise. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So uh, exercise is actually one of the best things you can do for your brain, and it really protects your brain against a lot of uh, brain diseases. But people who have already got brain diseases, they might have trouble getting exercise. So people with Parkinson's disease, for example, or multiple sclerosis. So I'm working on this rehabilitation machine called the Reviver. Mm-hmm. And what the Reviver does is it uh, you strap a patient in and it spins them around and they get a really strong exercise from this, which they otherwise wouldn't be able to get. I mean, I've had people in wheelchairs on this machine. So uh, it's been under development in Sydney and they've seen some uh, miraculous results. But as a scientist, we don't believe in miracles or some of us do. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm testing it in a randomized, a rigorous trial mm. uh, just to see if, if it has those effects that they're seeing up in Sydney. Yeah, I suppose because there's been a lot of these sorts of things that you can buy from dodgies. You know, they feel that way. You know, like you strap on this thing, it gives you a little electric uh, surges, and suddenly you've got a six pack. Um, you know, <laughs> we have to be careful of those and make sure they're really working. Um, but it, it sounds like this one takes a, a different approach. Uh, yeah, it is. So it's basically it's quite innovative. What it work does is it uses gravity to exercise the patient. So mm-hmm. uh, they're tilted to one side, and in order to maintain upright, all the muscles on one side of the body have to contract. So mm. it's, it's really getting those muscles to contract quite strongly. And uh, I've been on it myself. I've been doing it every day while I can't get to the gym. <laughs> and it has actually given me a six-pack. Yeah, wow, that's, that's fantastic. It sounds like this should, everyone should get one when they buy a television. Um, you should have to watch TV while on this thing, so at least you're doing something. Ben, uh, that sounds, it sounds really fascinating, especially for patients who are, who are less mobile. It sounds like a really good innovative strategy. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R. No worries. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Next up is Sally Richmond from Monash University. Good morning, Sally. Hi, Shane. How are you going? Good, thank you. Not going crazy in isolation like the rest of us? <laughs> Trying not to. <laughs> Excellent. Now, you're working on artificial intelligent voice assistance in parenting programs. I can imagine a lot of people are going to be very interested in this. Do tell. I'm really interested in seeing if we can use voice assistance to help parents support their children's emotional intelligence. Mm. And what does that look like in terms of, um, I mean, emotional intelligence is something we've always had a lot of trouble measuring. How do you, how would you know if it's working or not? Mm. So we're really at the very beginning of this research and the plan is um, to roll out the voice app and get parents to sort of test it. And then at the end of the research, we would do something like some of the other people have mentioned with an RCT. Mm. And the, the idea here is to like interact with the, with the individual, like with, with what? Uh, a series of uh, artificial people or voices or commentary or questions. What, what would that, what would that look like? Yeah. So it looks like you would use a smart uh, speaker or a phone and you would ask questions to the app. Mm-hmm. And the app would help you um, work through different scenarios um, that might be challenging. So if you were having trouble with your children in terms of uh, bedtime or going to school or something like that, and different approaches you can use um, so that you're more responsive to their emotions. Mm. Is there any chance you could have this ready by the end of today? <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, but we are looking for um, participants at the moment to, okay. to start with really early testing. Yeah, how do people uh, find that information? Uh, they can contact me at Monash, 
uh, mm-hmm. on my email address. So it's sallyrichmond at monash.edu. Okay. We'll try and tweet that out and uh, hopefully we'll get some participants. Sally, thanks so much for being on Triple R today. That would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up is Ranji De Silva from the University of Melbourne. Are you there? Hi, Shane. How are you going? Good. Now, you, you have uh, one of these tropical backgrounds to your uh, your sitting there. I'm assuming you're sitting in some dodgy room in your home. Um, <laughs> now, you, you work on perinatal morbidity uh, and, and mortality in the Asia Pacific. Just run us through what we what we mean by that in in terms of when when we're having the issues with uh, health. That's right, Shane. Um, my research is mainly based in the Solomon Islands, but mm-hmm. we're looking at data from all across the Asia-Pacific region. Yep. And what I mean by perinatal morbidity and mortality is really we're looking at why women and babies are dying unnecessarily in this region. Mm. Is is it specifically um, higher statistically in that region than in other parts of the world, like if you didn't have intervention? Much higher, Shane, unfortunately, and particularly higher compared to Australia, given that we're such close neighbours to this region. So a woman in the Asia-Pacific is about 20 times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth mm. compared to a woman in Australia. And But what's worse is that we don't really have a lot of strong data because it's difficult to collect good data in these countries. So that's what I'm focusing on in my PhD. Mm. And what's your sort of insight in terms of the, the cause here? Is it is it poor healthcare in general? You know, poor nutrition. Have you got sort of a feel for the for the cause? Yeah, there's many causes as you can imagine, and some of those are what you've already mentioned. But many of them, most importantly, are preventable. So about eighty mm. percent of them are actually preventable with easy solutions. So things like nutrition, good healthcare. But most importantly, things like regular antenatal care, early antenatal care when you're pregnant, and simple things like having blood available and tests to prevent things that we can prevent uh, before they happen. Mm. So working on uh, trying to figure out what the best way to stop this from happening is. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's really important work. And I think, as you say, we're so close by our ability to assist here is is quite profound. So it's, it's spectacular that you're you're doing that. Good luck uh, with that ongoing work, Rangi. Thanks so much for chatting to us on Triple R. Thanks so much, Shane. Next up is Sarah Bellet uh, from Monash University. Sarah, are you there? Hi, Shane. How are you going? Good. Uh, love your uh, background. There is that the Rage <laughs> logo I can see from the eighties. Yeah, that is the Rage logo. Old school. <laughs> Old school. Fantastic. Now you're from Monash University, and you're working on. Well, I, I, your title. I don't know what you're working on. It's maths, medicine, and mosquito sex. Which of the three are you focused on? All of them at once. Do Why tell. not all of them? Do tell. Sorry. Uh, so I'm a mathematician that looks at mosquito sex. And the reason why I'm looking at mosquito sex is because we're trying to breed a naturally occurring bacteria into mosquito populations in tropical areas because it stops them from spreading the dengue virus to humans when they bite them. Hmm, Interesting. So one of the things I always ask people in this area is, do we know what that will do to other populations other than humans if we do that? So I'm not a biologist, so I'm I'm confined by um, my understanding of the topic, but 
this bacteria is uh, naturally occurring in almost all species of insects in the world. Okay. So there's different strains of them. So what we've done is we've gotten a strain of this bacteria that's found in fruit flies, uh, and we've given it to, to mosquitoes. So it's all natural. Um, I don't think it, it's not easily spread to other species. Mm. Like you basically have to do it in a lab. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And will the mosquitoes spread amongst themselves? I mean, is that the deal there or do we have to give it to the mosquitoes and sort of let them go? So this, uh, bacteria isn't really spread by, you know, not washing your hands mm. or not having enough t- toilet paper stockpiled or something like <laughs> yeah. that. You need to breed it into populations. So mosquitoes get it from their parents. Okay. Yep. So that's why I need to look at mosquito sex because we need to make sure that the right mosquitoes are having sex with the right mosquitoes because then we have that bacteria passed down to the next generation. Yeah. And presumably this is something that if you get it right, you'd spread this pretty quickly because of the speed at which insects, you know, reproduce. Yes, yes, that's absolutely correct. So if you leave it in a um, very sort of well-organized, closed-off population, it spreads quite easily and quite quickly. But the reality is, you know, we don't have that, right? So urban neighborhoods, suburban areas have, like, huge highways that mosquitoes can't necessarily cross. We've got big parks that they won't get over the side of. So I'm coming in and I'm looking at this sort of... um, differences in sort of spatial structure or like uh, our funny looking neighborhoods and the actual structure of neighborhoods. And that is where the the issue is. Yeah, Fascinating. Thanks so much, Sarah. Good luck with the work. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. You too. And next up, we have another Sarah, Sarah Webb from Swinburne University of Technology. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Now, I'm particularly interested in yours because it's uh, titled The Hunt for Cosmic Gold. What's going on? Are we looking for gold again? That's right. Oh, so it's just a fancy term for looking for big, bad cosmic explosions. Um, so the only way gold can get made is when you have an insanely heavy star that crashes into another insanely heavy star or even into a black hole, hmm. and it causes a special thing called the R process, which means that gold and other heavy elements can be created. Hmm. Um, part of my work is trying to look for these events that are proving to be very, very rare. Yeah. So how do you, I've always wondered how you go about that. Do you just stare at a patch of sky and hope for the best? Or are there some areas where you think it's more likely that this will occur? Right. That's a great question. So what actually happens is we get alerted from a gravitational wave detector. So LIGO will alert us that um, a signal has come from a compact binary merger. So we've got to get on the hunt. And so mm-hmm. and we do both both of those methods. So we get big giant telescopes and stare at the region of sky that it said it come from. But then we also target galaxies because we know uh, in the universe, we have these beautiful things called galaxies, which we live in. Uh, and then in between them, there's nothing. Mm. So we don't want to look at the nothing. We want to look at the galaxies. Yeah. I just love the fact that you're using LIGO that way because the, the gravitational wave gets to us first and then you've got a short window before the all the stuff in the optical range, uh, all the light and, and various stuff gets to us. takes a little bit longer because sometimes it has to take a, a longer route, I suppose. Is that right? Right. So uh, the we've seen one amazing event so far, one kilonova from 2017. And what we saw was gravitational wave. Uh, and then the first optical data we didn't get for 12 hours. Wow. But we don't know. They didn't locate it for 12 hours. So we're not exactly sure what happens beforehand. And so my program is actually on Sky trying to look for what happens beforehand or look for these kilonovae explosions without the gravitational wave alert. Uh, yeah. Because 
that is a little bit of a mystery to us. We know that there was a gamma ray burst and we know that we did see a, a counterpart, uh, but when did that counterpart show up? Mm. And, you know, is there anything more exciting that's happening yeah. behind the gravitational wave? Oh, it's wild stuff. It's wild stuff. Thank you so much, Sarah. Good luck with that ongoing work. It's, it's really a fascinating new era of astronomy. It's just all been, you know, it's exploded. Forgive the pun. It is. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye. Next up is Dr. Nissa Salem from Swinburne University of Technology. Nissa, are you there? Hi, Shane. Oh, How are you? There we go. Uh, yeah, excellent. Uh, now, you're working on um, how to store energy in new structures and so forth. Tell us about that. That sounds fascinating. So it's just one part of my research. So actually, my research is on multifunctional uh, materials that is mainly inspired from nature. That is, we are combining different functionalities into one material and mainly we are adopting the designs and um, functions from nature. Mm. I mean, what what sort of functions from nature are you trying to bring in? Because I guess there's probably some that are good and some that are less good. It's like, uh, see, um, um, basically I am a material science and engineering researcher. Uh, but one, uh, one thing I'm actually... Um, Fighting is at the moment we are only using three components in this research, that is physics, chemistry, and engineering. But one part that is missing in this research so far is the biology. So that's the way I'm saying that when we look around, we can see most of the, the answers for um, uh, our materials. For example, when you look at ourselves, our skin, it's got a fantastic functions like mm. it can, it, it is actually showing a bunch of functions like it, it got fantastic elasticity, it got self-healing properties. Sometimes even our skin act as an actuators. So why don't we come why don't we think about to make a material that exactly mimicking our skin? Mm. Uh, look, it sounds fascinating, and uh, I'm a big fan of that because biology's had a lot more time to work on this than we have, literally hundreds of millions of years. Thanks so much for being our guest today on Triple R, Nissa. Good luck with the work. Thank you so much, Shane. Good to chat to you. Next up is Anu, Anu Ranjendran from Swinburne University. Anu, are you there? I am. Hi, Shane. Good morning. Compliments on your Zoom background. Looks like uh, the northern or southern lights. Yes, they're beautiful, aren't they? Oh, they're fantastic. Uh, now, you're talking about uh, life support for astronauts, so let's get serious. What do we need? Okay, so we're basically going to need technology that's going to be able to support not only the physiological, but also the psychological health of astronauts. As many of you may know, uh, NASA has said that we are now going to go back to the moon. Mm. And of course, we're going to build a colony on the moon, which is then going to enable us to then go on to Mars. Now, to go so far into deep space, we're going to need technology that's going to be able to perform and sit between ground control and the astronauts who will be remotely working over on Mars. Mm. And, and we're talking about extended flight times here too, aren't we? I mean, to get to Mars eventually, I mean, Moon's three days, but Mars is getting up towards nine months. Absolutely, absolutely. So if you're going to Mars, you're not going for a few months, you're going for a few years. Mm. And there's about a, there's a communication delay there for up to 40 minutes. So if you go there and you run into an emergency, it's going to be a while before someone responds to you from Earth. Mm. And all they can do is send you a, you know, a little care emoji, really. You're on your own, right? I mean, even on the moon, you're on your own. It's not like they can get you some help anytime soon. Exactly. That's why a lot of the health is going to be, ha is going to have to be, you know, managed in real time and constantly by technology 
on the moon or on Mars. Mm. Has our technology progressed quite substantially since the last time we were on the moon? I mean, when we look at the rockets we're using, they're very similar. I mean, a lot of that technology is very similar. I mean, it's obviously computerized and everything better, but the core technology is very similar. What about for life support and stuff? Has that changed substantially? Absolutely. Uh, as far as you know, I know, I know that technology is constantly going up with every launch up to the mm. ISS, where it's going to be tested as part of what's called an analog. So we're going to use the ISS as a, as a simulation for what we'll eventually see on the moon and then on on Mars. Mm. Look, fascinating stuff in here. I love this. It's it's really, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a space junkie. Listeners to the show know. So hearing this research is being done here in Melbourne is spectacular. Well done. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and finally, we have Emma Aspen. Now, believe it or not, Emma is from the University of Adelaide, but that hasn't stopped us because Adelaide does not have a FameLab uh, competition for themselves. So Emma's come over to be part of ours as well. Good morning, Emma. Good morning, Shane. You well? Yeah, very well. It's pretty early over there. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Uh, anything for my Sunday morning. <laughs> now, uh, you work on insects and uh, as pests and parasites and all these things. Tell us about what you're doing. Basically, yeah, I'm studying the behavior of wasps that parasitize and kill these caterpillars that are actually a huge pest in the grapevine industry. Mm. And, and, and what's, I mean, what's the, um, what's the approach to, is it just more and more insecticides or are you looking at more substantial and more interesting ways to go after these pests? Yeah, exactly. Well, the behavior of the wasps and the parasitoids here are really beneficial because it's basically a natural biocontrol that's on the field anyway. So if we can hone it and understand what's going on, we could potentially release these parasitoids. It's like a large scale. Uh, wine tastes not very great. Yeah. Emma, I might just get you to turn off your video for the last sort of 30 seconds for us, just uh, getting a little bit of feedback there on, on the... On the no worries. The, yeah. Um, now, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, release, how, how controlled do you have to be on releasing these things into the environment? Yeah, well, before releasing them on a huge scale, we need to dis- like, discover the behaviour that's going on, which is my job, really, because we don't situation again so we're getting there but yeah first we're understanding their behavior which is pretty gross and pretty gnarly yep but after that hopefully it's just profit yeah look it sounds like a great project and certainly some of these industries for australia are huge so it'd be good if we could do it without some of the nasty chemicals emma thanks so much for being our guest on triple i our final one for the fame lab group thanks so much thanks a lot bye bye well, there we go, folks. Uh, 14 researchers uh, from all across Victoria and one from South Australia in just uh, 30 minutes. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein Go Go on 3 Triple R. On the line now, I have our 15th guest for today. I think I'd say that very often. Dr. Fiona Dobson, who is the Deputy Head of the Department of Physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Fiona. Good morning, Shane. It's great to chat to you uh, in a far more relaxed way than I did the, the last <laughs> group. Uh, now, you, you work on osteoarthritis. Let's just give people the quick rundown if they're not sure what that is. What is osteoarthritis? Sure, Shane. So osteoarthritis is a condition that affects joints 
it's different to osteoporosis, um, and it affects the whole joint, including the bone itself, mm-hmm. the cartilage that cover the bone, ligaments and muscles. And it's really characterised by pain, stiffness and swelling. And we think this is due to um, the stresses that go on within the joint, and they then trigger this maladaptive repair response that can lead to inflammation in the joint tissues and cells. And so often in the past, um, osteoarthritis has been described as this wear and tear type mm. of passive process. Yeah. But now it's really thought to be the result of the joint actually working too hard to repair itself. So a real active process. And so rather than wear and tear, it's really a problem of abnormal joint repair. Mm. So it's an inflammation condition, is that right? Yeah, so we... We've often thought of osteoarthritis as a non-inflammatory mm. type of arthritis, but more recently we've been understanding a lot more about the processes that go on in the intracellular area, and this is triggering this maladaptive repair, which creates like a cycle of inflammation within the joint. And so inflammation plays a part. It's not all of it, um, but it plays a part in osteoarthritis as well. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and this is where I want you to dispel any myths that I may come out with here, is when I hear this and I hear about joint pain and joint problems and so forth, the first thing I think is I've got to stop walking too much, I've got to stop running, I've got to stop exercising because I've only got a certain amount left in these joints and, that's, and this is going to make it worse. Is, is this right? Yeah, so this is a really common myth, Shane, and a lot of people share this view. And I think it it comes, it stems from that real definition that we've had in the past of wear and tear, mm-hmm. because we then think that well, if it's wear and tear, exercise could be more harmful in our joints. It could it could wear down that cartilage even more. And what we now know is this isn't true because we actually have really high quality evidence that indicates that exercise is not only important for healthy cartilage, but it's really safe on joints too, including the cartilage in people with osteoarthritis. And what we know is that normal joints actually need movement. They need us to be exercising to keep them really nourished and lubricated and therefore to make movement easier. And so it may be a little bit cringy, but the good old saying, motion is lotion, is really important when it comes to joint health. And exercise is important um, for also not just the joint, but the muscles around the joint that actually help um, protect that joint as well. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems to me as especially with, I remember this with with, uh, having back problems about 15 years ago and the one thing my physiotherapist at the time said was you know get out and get walking and get moving and it was the last thing I wanted to do but she was dead right and I haven't had those problems since because I've been doing a lot of that I find that really helps and those muscles support that structure so it's not doing more work than it otherwise should what are there any treatments for this condition at this point or is this something we just have to sort of monitor and maintain no, in fact, it's not, um, sometimes arthritis is seen as sort of an inevitable condition that we've just got to wait for and wait for the joint to wear down and then maybe, you know, down the future go for a joint replacement. Mm. But nothing can be further from the truth. There's a lot that can be done right now. In fact, we have, um, you know, all of our clinical guidelines recommend some of the front forerunner treatments, uh, things like good education about the disease itself really is important, exercise and also weight management. 
they are the three top picks that are recommended across all clinical guidelines. There's other things that can be done too. So we can think about other self-management programs, um, for example, pain coping programs where we can um, use some cognitive behavioural techniques as, as well. And in fact, um, in, within our Centre of Health and Exercise and Sports Medicine at the University of Melbourne, we've actually got a web-based pain coping program called Pain Trainer, and that's freely available for yeah. everyone to use. So a really good resource. Um, so really the front runners um, are exercise, weight management and education. And not only are they effective in helping us to alleviate um pain and also improve function and therefore improve mobility and activity and quality of life. But the other great things about these types of treatments are that they are relatively um, cost-free and they also have very few side effects. Mm. And so when you put all of that together, um, there's no reason why all clinical guidelines around the world recommend these. Yeah. Now, just before I let you go, Fiona, because we've got to move on, but um, you are running a clinical trial at the moment. Are you recruiting for that? Absolutely, Shane. So we're looking at a, a clinical trial. It's a randomised controlled trial uh, that looks is comparing two different types of exercise programs for people with hip osteoarthritis, um, and eight, and participants in will um, they'll be randomised to one of two groups, um, and each group will receive individual physiotherapy consultations and a home exercise program. Mm. So we've got lots of studies running um, within our centre. So if hips not your game, we've also got studies for knees, we've got studies for big toes, and we've got studies for weight management through the Chesham sites. But if you're interested in the hip osteoarthritis study, we are recruiting. We're on a bit of a pause with COVID-related stuff at the yep. moment, but we're really looking for expressions of interest. You can find us online with www phoenix study or one word dot com dot au or if you just do a, a google search for um phoenix hip pain it'll be come up in the top hits but there's a couple of things um to to take part um need to be over 50 years of age and have had pain for more than three months oh, i'm just short of the age limit damn it i was ready to sign up <laughs> all these free physio well, I'm, sessions. well I'm certainly not so i might sign up myself <laughs> yeah, lovely chatting to you it's great to hear these myths being busted and, and getting that information out to people about how to really deal with these conditions and what they mean um, so that they can carry on with their lives in a, in a healthy and happy way. Uh, good luck with the, the study and uh, thanks for being our guest today on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks very much, Shane. It's great to talk to you. Uh, that was Dr. Fiona Dobson, the Deputy Head of the Department of Physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We thought we'd throw in some news at the end of the show. So I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Dr. Ray, Dr. Linden and Dr. Laura. Good morning, people. Good morning. It's, Good morning. It's, morning. It's great to see you. I miss you guys. Uh, we miss you too. I miss humans. Yeah, I had to put on pants to come in here though. So at least you guys can feel comfortable at home in whatever you're wearing. Yeah. Yeah, no yeah com- let's not talk about what Yeah, I was going to say, there's no comments coming forward there. <laughs> okay, I admit it. They're pink tracksuit pants, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get some You views. can see that I'm wearing a shirt. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Uh, good image. Uh, Dr. Linden, let's start with you. What have you got? Uh, do- uh, Dr. Shane, you know that I love looking at the weather stats, and given the, the rain and the cold that we've had in the last few days, I mean, we've all been focused on what's happening in our backyard, what's happening in our suburb. 
So much rain, so much cold. I don't know about you. My heat has been on for four solid days, even yeah. with the tracksuit pants and the permanent Ugg boots. Uh, but one of my favourite pieces of reading is the monthly Bureau of Meteorology climate summaries that tells what's going on. And the climate summary for this month, while it was quite cold, it was colder than average across Victoria, it was our fifth warmest April on record. Oh, wow. Did you know that for Australia it as well? I feel like it. <laughs> no, it didn't feel like it. Nice. I say, yeah, I feel sorry for these poor people, you know, who have had real shit snow seasons forever and then all of a sudden they've had this massive dump of snow over the last few days and, oh, no one there. No one there to yeah. use it. Yeah. Mm. yeah it's, it's beautiful. The images of the snow is beautiful and it's yeah. interesting now. So we've had, it was quite warm across the country. The north and the west was quite warm, but it was colder than average across Victoria. Also wetter than average, exactly double the average of at the April rainfall that we had this year. The wettest year, or the wettest April since 1974, which I'm pretty sure most people could agree with. If you're going outside in your boots or your socks, it's quite soggy. But now that's exactly right, Shane. Every eye is turning to the future. And excitingly, after last year's super dry year, we've already had our wettest start to the mm. year on record. We've had more rain so far this year than we had had for all of last year. Uh, the main culprit for that being what was going on in the Indian Ocean. So last year, the Indian Ocean was cooler than normal near us. So it cut off a real moisture source. But now the, the monsoon has moved down. Uh, moved away from us and things can start reprocessing again. And lots of computer models are suggesting that the next few months, the ocean waters near us are going to get warmer around the Indian Ocean. So there's a good chance of more rain, which is pretty great if you're a farmer, uh, pretty great if you're sick of seeing lots of red maps, maybe time to be seeing some green ones. Mm. It's really exciting. Yep, excellent stuff. And and if you're stuck at home, you know, it doesn't make you feel that bad. It's raining outside. You can't go outside anyway. So it's great. I love the rain. It's great. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Well, uh, Shane, it's it's a, a story about how to keep your houses cool, uh, and this is from radiation. <laughs> Open from the doors. Or... Open the doors. Yeah. Well, the, the easiest way, you know, when our our houses absorb a lot of of heat from the sun, and so one of the easiest ways to keep your house cool is to paint it white and paint your roof, roof white. But if yeah. you don't like white paint and you want to have some colors, some fashion, some panache, what do you do? And and so researchers at Columbia University have developed a two layer paint that's able to reflect the infrared wavelengths or the infrared light that heats up um, your house more. And they're able to show that compared to commercial paints, they can, they're about 15 degrees cooler by this clever two-layer paint. The top layer is very thin layer that gives you the color. So, and that lets the, but it only blocks or absorbs the visible light, lets the infrared light, which is about 50% of where the, the light that comes from the sun through. And then the underlayer, which is kind of a, similar to Teflon in chemistry, but not Teflon, cheap, scalable polymer coating that actually reflects the infrared light. So this is radiative cooling that you can put on houses. Um, and while it's different than commercial paints, it doesn't look like it's any more expensive to make them. Hmm. Uh, and spectacular. So, yeah. yeah, I was really impressed by this. And, um, and the researchers said, well, now that we have this two-layer paint, you know, instead of just reflecting the infrared radiation, Maybe we can figure out a way to make that layer conductive or absorb the IR radiation and generate electricity. So some pretty pretty clever folks at Columbia. Um, so um, I don't know if uh, if uh, the paint manufacturers are going to take that up quickly, but hopefully that's the type of 
innovation we'll start to see in, in outdoor coatings for houses. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I really love it. S- simple approach too, not too complicated, just, yeah. you know, reflect the right and absorb the, the wrong and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and off you go. So, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Well, I've got a story that's super relevant, maybe even particularly for you, Shane. It's about how one metabolizes their alcohol. Uh, Anyone got a hangover this I'm morning? Sure what, sorry, what? This morning? No. Uh, uh, <laughs> no right. Well, um, actually, just to sidestep for a second, really the highlight of my week was our favorite Nobel laureate in Melbourne, Peter Doherty, mistakenly taken to Twitter instead of Google to look out Dan Murphy's opening hours at like 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. That was really mm. a highlight for me. Peter got his delivery. He did. He did. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, and a lot of yeah. media coverage of that. Yeah, you know, so, we love that. And so did I. We love to know we're in good company with our drinking. So um, a, topically, a study came out of Calgary this week, which did an analysis of 85 different animals to look at which were best at holding their alcohol. Now, you may know that alcohol is broken down by the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase, or ADH. And this this like dates back to um, all our ancestors' super ancient gene. It's been around for 50 million years right? This, this genes, where, how they date it back. But around 10 million years ago, there was a split where there was a mutation in, in this gene, which made primates 40 times more efficient at processing alcohol. And the reason why it's thought that this was selected for is the earth is cooling, fruits falling to the ground, there's bacteria that converts the sugar into alcohol. And then um, those you know, primates or, you know, our ancestors that could not get drunk off the fruit because there can be up to 8% of alcohol in the fruit, they would do better. They wouldn't be drunk and rolling around. They would be able to defend their territories. Yeah, so they wouldn't right. walk up and go, hello, friendly lion. Yeah, they'd be, <laughs> the cheap dates would be out. So getting back to the present study, so they um, analysed 85 different animals and what they found is that, oh, those animals that could that generally ate fruit or nectar like um, chimpanzees, gorillas, us, also um, bats are very good at metabolizing alcohol. Um, they had this this form of the gene with that mutation that makes it 40-fold more efficient at processing alcohol. Plant-based animals like cows or horses or elephants didn't have this, so they mm. had a very inefficient ability to process alcohol. And the reason why this is really interesting is there's is anyone anyone know about the myth of the drunken elephant? Elephants staggering around after, you know, having some manula oil, manula fruit, which is what they, you know, so I'm thinking manula oil now because I was like, oh, that's why that skincare brand Drunk Elephant is called Drunk Elephant because they have manula oil in them. <laughs> Sorry, sidestep. But um, so basically um, scientists debunked it because they said the amount of fruit elephants would have to consume with the rate of alcohol metabolism that they couldn't possibly get drunk. But they were basing it on human um, mm. consumption. Elephants don't have the gene. They can't process it as well. So it's very, very possible that elephants could truly be drunk. Are you experimenting Laura, on your dog? Yeah. <laughs> I feel I'm like just going to brief. It's topical. Can I just briefly say I went down a rabbit hole into researching this, and if you give a monkey a cocktail with alcohol versus not alcohol, they will go for the alcohol version every time. We have it's, it's, it's evolutionary <laughs> ancient that we will go for the alcohol. It reminds us of the rotting fruit. I can't help but remember that the last time I think we spoke together on the air, Laura, you also talked about alcohol. I feel like there's well, yeah. something going on. Yeah. It's COVID-19, you know? Laura's losing it. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Look, it's a, it's a, you know, normally I'd say be careful, but it's a good coping strategy for a lot of people at the moment. Don't go too far. Have a nice drink. Enjoy yourself as you normally would Bring on a yourself. Saturday night. Try and have a day off once a week. That's been my policy. Um, just to <laughs> keep the liver flowing, but, uh, keep it sane, people. Uh, you three are great. It's so good to see you all. And uh, I wish you're in the studio with me, but this has been fun. So thanks so much for calling in and, uh, we'll see you in a few weeks time, eh? All right, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this hour of science. It has been crazy. We're going to do something similar next week with Fame Lab, but the difference will be it won't just be the Victorian finalists. It will be the finalists from all over Australia. So a slightly smaller group, hopefully, uh, because 14 was was a lot to get through, but uh, we'll have a small group on next week and we'll have a bit of fun with that. Until then, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday, and thanks for supporting Triple R. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.